Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. It is a delight to be with you today on this uh, after Easter Sunday, seven days from Easter. You know, it's one thing to uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ Uh, which we did last week in glorious fashion and really millions around the world uh, did as well. It's a special thing to uh, celebrate that uh, magnificent historical event. But I want you to know it's another thing to capture that event in your life, to make the resurrection part of your ongoing daily experience. You know, I think it is interesting as we uh, close out the book of Luke uh, here this morning that uh, all of the Gospels do not end with the great celebration of the resurrection. The resurrection always, I mean, the resurrection is a few chapters in and then there's some stories that kind of finish out each of the Gospel accounts. And uh, in that they don't end with some wild resurrection party throughout Jerusalem with the crowds chanting, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. Hollywood probably would have scripted it that way, uh, but the gospel writers don't script it that way at all. In fact, each of the gospels end, uh, interestingly enough, on somewhat of a somber note. I don't mean a downcast note, but a somber note as the participants who've been around Jesus during his life and crucifixion and now his resurrection are trying to make sense personally with what the resurrection really means to them now that it's occurred and they have to go back to an everyday experience of life. So what you see, for instance, in the Gospel of John is you see Peter, this great apostle, even after the resurrection, taking some of his friends and going back to the fishing business. That seems kind of strange. And the resurrected Christ having to confront him about that, even knowing that a resurrection had taken place. Uh, For instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, most of the time we quote that great commission passage which says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. What we normally don't quote as they sat on that mountainside is this particular statement. And there were some who were sitting listening to Jesus and doubting. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? They were doubting. They were wrestling with what this resurrection really meant. They loved the event. Jesus is alive. Maybe you felt that last week. We love the event. I mean, packed house, people standing, you know, to get in here. But now it's seven days from Easter. And if I can ask this question, so what? I'm not asking that question sarcastically, mind you. But Jesus is alive. That's great. Let's celebrate that event. But so what? So what if he's alive? What does that mean to me? Realistically, practically, in the everyday of my life, what does that mean? You know, the different gospel writers each give a different story and a different twist to answering that particular question, as I've already mentioned. But I think they're trying to answer for us might be good even this week for you to go read those accounts, but they're trying to answer for us, what is life like after Easter? What goes on after that? They're trying to get at and scratch at the so what 
question. And in so doing, move Easter from an event, which it is for most people, an event. That's why there's a jam-packed congregation and churches all across the world on Easter and a much smaller group the next Sunday. Moving it from an event to an experience that you carry with you day to day in your lifestyle. This particular story that we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, is a story in which Luke introduces us to two men, evidently uh, believers in Jesus Christ, at least they were believers in Jesus Christ, up till the crucifixion, and they are walking back home from Jerusalem, very despondent, but they are pondering the life of our Lord, the words of our Lord, the events that have occurred in, in uh in Jerusalem, his crucifixion, and even some of the reported statements by some women that he really did rise from the dead. I want you to notice as you look at verse 13 that these, these men suddenly appear in Scripture. They've never been mentioned before. Uh, in fact, this is the only account of these two men other than one verse in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I think that's important to note because these were not apostles. These were not key figures of the early church. These were just a couple of ordinary guys who had signed on somewhere in the ministry of Jesus Christ, had followed him up to this point, and had now come to a place where they wondered, what's it all about? And what does all this mean? As they walk, these ordinary men from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they have a very extraordinary encounter with the living Christ. And it holds much instruction about life after Easter I believe for us. We want to join them in this journey here this morning. And we can do so if you will, if you'll take your Bibles and read with me. We're going to start reading in verse 13 and we're going to start this journey with these two gentlemen. It says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing Him. The Gospel of Mark, by the way, tells us why they were prevented from recognizing them. In that one verse about these two men in the Gospel of Mark, it says that when Jesus appeared, He appeared to these two men in a different form. He was, I guess you could say, incognito as He suddenly shows up on this roadside with them, and he does so because he's got a specific purpose in mind. And I want you to note all the way through here, in this little encounter and walk, Jesus, in a sense, plays the part of the Holy Spirit in your and my life. You know, the Spirit comes back in a different form. And he shows up occasionally, and he disappears occasionally, and part of his movement is to move on our life at sometimes unexpected times, just like with these two gentlemen. But Jesus comes and He is going to help these two men gain a deeper appreciation and a deeper understanding about what it means concerning the resurrection. It's not just an event. Whether you believe it or disbelieve it, it was meant to be more than an event. It was meant to have significant meaning in your everyday experience. There's life after Easter, you know. And here's some of the meanings that He helps them understand about a living Christ. We want to kind of explore this together. The first, I think, is already prominent, and you can use your outline to fill these in, but what does it mean to have a living Christ? 
I think first, a living Christ means that things are not the same, no, what, no matter what you may think at a particular time. Like many others, these two men had believed Jesus to be the Messiah. His words had inspired them, given them hope. Uh, they had believed in Him for a time. They had committed themselves to Him. What they didn't know is that He committed Himself to them. But they committed themselves to Him. But then there was the crucifixion and all those hopes that they had had about the Messiah and what that would mean. They were dashed. And then there were the events in Jerusalem and, and now they walked away with a lot to talk about. So they're going down this road back home, walking away from a failed spiritual experiment in their minds. Back to what I call the same old, same old, everyday lifestyle. In their minds, as they're walking back to Emmaus, it's kind of like that what they saw in Jerusalem is kind of like what we experience when we go to a sporting event. You go there, you cheer, you get all excited. Sometimes your team gets beaten and all that. But after you walk out of the stadium, you kind of shut that chapter on your life and leave all that behind and you just go back to everyday living. It's kind of what had happened in Jerusalem for these guys. Life goes on now for them. They're back into the routine. They're heading back to Emmaus. And I'm sure even as they're thinking, some of them are beginning to put on their real face, you know, because life's going to start up tomorrow morning and they're going to have to go back to a job. And it was a nice try, but, you know, it didn't work out. And they thought Jesus was the prophet and he turned out to just be a prophet. You know, sometimes we feel like that, don't we? With Jesus Christ. We come in and we have a great experience. You go to a seminar and all of a sudden things are presented to you and they make such sense. But then you go back to kind of the routine. Same old, same old. What seemed so spectacular then, by the time you get to Monday morning, eh, you know, it's just not quite the same. You don't think it's going to work out. Sometimes we feel like that in our relationship with Christ. We go on and it's kind of like, well, it was great having the, the Easter service, but you know, I live in the real world, you know, with hard decisions. And well, you know, it's just the same old, same old for me. But here's what I want you to know. If the resurrection is really what it said it was, things are not the same. A living Christ means things are not the same no matter what you might think. Things have changed. I learned that when I first became a Christian. I remember a man introducing me to Jesus Christ. I think I was ready at that point. He explained it so well. It made sense to me. And I asked Christ into my life. And I remember as I walked back to my room, I don't know what I expected, but I think I expected something to happen. You know, didn't, didn't you? So I, I bowed my head and I prayed the prayer. And when I looked up, nothing had changed. Just the same old, same old. Went back to my same old roommate. Went back to my same old books. Went to my, back to my same old classes. And I thought, well, it was a nice try. Nice try. It was a spiritual experiment, but eh, it didn't quite work out. About 10 days later, as I was sitting with some friends in a bar on Dixon Street, Jesus showed up. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that He showed up physically, but he did show up spiritually. Later, I realized that the Bible teaches that when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And you're just going to have to take my word for it here. And I don't know how my word, good my word is here, but when I was sitting there with these guys, you know, we were ordering some drinks. And I was sitting there and all of a sudden it was like, you don't need to be here, Robert. 
And uh, I thought, you know, what's going on here? And uh, I could think, all I could think of was this was not right for me. And suddenly just the name Jesus appeared, Jesus. And it was like in a moment, just like in a flash, I realized he really is in my life. What I prayed 10 days ago, between then, things are not the same. No matter what I thought, I might even have been faithless, just like these guys. They're faithless at this point. But you know what the scriptures teach? He remains faithful because he can't deny himself. When you said, I do, he says, and I do too. And you may go, well, I don't want it anymore. But he says, hold on, brother. We're committed for life. And I'm going to show up. And Jesus Christ showed up in my life. And I remember from that point on, that began a journey with the living Christ. You see, there is life after Easter. And though that's an event, the living Christ goes on and things are not the same, no matter what you may think. I uh, had a great conversation with a friend who started his spirit, spiritual journey so excited and he just kind of hit Dullesville. And we were talking, he said, you know, my, my life, my spiritual life is just absolutely dead. So sometimes I wonder even if it's, it's all real. Maybe you felt like that at some time. But then as the next few weeks rolled around, even after he told me that story, you know, it was like God orchestrated events using certain friends in his life, certain circumstances. And though at that point he still wasn't faithful, his call to me is that God is moving. Jesus showed up. He's still here. And he will be. That's what the resurrection means. Doesn't mean what you think. Just because you think it's all kind of gone to pot, that doesn't change. It says here that a living Christ means that things are not the same. They're radically different. And they will be, whether you know it or not. There's a second thing here too. And that is a living Christ means that things are not as bad no matter what we feel. These guys felt bad. You'll see this as I read. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and you're unaware of these things which have happened here in these days? <laughs> it's kind of like being in LA and saying, who's Rodney King? <laughs> and somebody going, where have you been, bro? I mean, this has been going on day and night. But see, Jesus is kind of toying with them. He's wanting them to, to work it out with him. Just like the Holy Spirit, when he moves on your life, he begins to probe you with little questions. It's kind of like you're talking to yourself, but he's wanting you to get it out. He's wanting you to confess where you are. And in these guys' minds, they're in bad shape. Here's why. Look at the next verse. And they said to him, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, well, it's these things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word and in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death. And they crucified him. But now notice verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Oh, we really hoped he was going to do that. And in that, as they speak, they reveal their misplaced hope. See, they thought they were going to have a Messiah who was going to come on the scene and he was going to politically overthrow the Romans. He was going to set up Israel and restore to her glory of Solomon and build a great temple and have 
Israel as being the jewel among the nations and the Messiah would reign over the whole earth. That was the kind of Messiah they were looking for. And yet this guy comes into town, creates a stir, and ends up with some criminals being crucified. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. What they expose here is that their whole paradigm of spiritual life was wrong. And I look at these guys and I feel for them, but also feel for us because so much of what we think is bad in our life is simply because our paradigm is wrong too. You know what our paradigm for so many of us is? We think when we bring Jesus Christ in our life, whether we'll say this and admit it to others or not, so often what we're expecting is the good life. That's what we want. We want things to go well. We want our job to go well. We want our marriage to go well. We want our kids to look perfect. You know, we want to be in good health. We want the good life. That's our paradigm. That's why we have Jesus. We thought he was going to, if I can paraphrase here, give us the good life. Then all of a sudden, things begin to break down a little. Things don't go as well. Our kids don't turn out so good. Maybe they even get in trouble with the police. Our marriage begins to be rocky. We have some personal issues that we can't seem to overcome. And we go, what is the deal? This is bad and I am sad. But a living Christ means that things are not as bad, no matter how you feel. Because his paradigm is not the good life, ladies and gentlemen. His paradigm is for a purposeful, eternal life. That's his paradigm. And how many times have I sat with someone, and by the way, it's so good to be sitting, listening to someone, because you can be so objective. When it's your life, you can be so out of control. But I'm sitting there listening to somebody and they're telling me about their rotten marriage and their rotten mate and how their mate is saying this about them and how that couldn't possibly be true. And I'm sitting there in the chair knowing this person and I'm going, you know, God gave them just the right mate because that is true. <laughs> and they so desperately need to hear it or they're not going to be redeemed. There's no accident here. It's purposeful. Sometimes a tragedy sweeps over to your life and you shake your fist at God and say, why God, why did you let this happen to me? I deserve the good life. And yet Jesus Christ is not letting one thing happen to you by accident. Those things have been crafted in heaven. They may seem tragic and they may hurt a great deal and they may make you awfully sad. But so many times to those standing around watching what is really going on, not only is it not bad, it's good. Here are these men saying, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. And here's Jesus Christ incognito, knowing that he had redeemed Israel. He had saved her. And they couldn't see it. You see what a living Christ means? is that things are not that bad, no matter how you may feel at any given period of time. What really matters is your paradigm. And your paradigm is desperately dependent upon whether you walk with a living Christ or whether you practice a religion that you've crafted and shaped yourself. There's a third thing here, too, about what a living Christ means. What these men help us see about our own life a living Christ means that things are not that way no matter what we might see 
at a given time. Our perspectives, ladies and gentlemen, is so narrow and the scripture's perspective is so panoramic. But so often we forget about what the scripture says and we look around and as we see things, that's the way they are and nobody can tell us otherwise. And I want you to know sight is an ugly thing many times. It's so misleading. It's so narrow. It's so deceptive and it's so limiting. And we can see that in these guys' lives. Look at verse 21. They say, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Now they mention that because that's important because they knew that Jesus Christ had said he was going to rise on the third day. The scriptures had said he was going to rise on the third day. But also, they say, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it exactly as the women also had said. But now notice, but him they did not see. And you can just kind of put in parentheses, so they didn't believe it. <laughs> That's what it said. That's what they did. They didn't believe it. They had the Old Testament scriptures that said he was going to rise from the dead. They had Jesus' words that he was going to rise from the dead. Now they had the reported appearances that he, was going to, that he did rise from the dead. And they had some of the very apostles of the church go and couldn't find him. The tomb moved, the soldiers gone. But see, they lived by sight. And things just didn't look that way to them. They lived in the narrow, constricted world of personal vision. And it's so deceptive. So they didn't believe the women. They didn't believe Jesus Christ. They didn't believe the scripture. They went their way. So often it becomes humorous when you look in the scriptures because notice at the end here in verse 24, they look at Jesus Christ and they say, I get this, he's incognito. And they say, they went to the tomb, but we didn't see him. And they're looking right at him. Isn't that crazy? You almost kind of want to laugh there. They're looking right into the resurrected Christ and say, he didn't rise. He didn't. And yet there he is, right there. You know, we do exactly the same thing. We look at someone and say, you know, I can't see this marriage ever working. I've looked at it. I brought all my expertise, my intelligence. I brought all the resources that I have and I've looked at it and studied it. It'll never work. I've worked on this problem for years and I, I'll never get on top of it. I've tried, I've worked at it. I've done everything you've told me, but it's not gonna work. It's just too big for me. There's never gonna be joy in my life. This, this situation that's come into my life and has left me in this circumstance, it's just, it's robbed me of all the joy. And we're telling God that. And he's looking at us with all the power of the universe, with all the plans that probably he has for us, with all the miracles that he wants to work in us for his glory. He just stares at us and says, you can't get it. You just can't see it. See, their seeing was disbelieving, but believing is seeing. But they didn't believe, so they couldn't see. And that's where they were at this point. So often it's like that, isn't it? We miss everything because we're only looking at it by our experience. And a living Christ means that things are not that way, the way we see it. 
No matter what we see, it's what the Scripture says it is. That's what reality is. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we don't lose heart in this life. Boy, you can. If you start looking around, you're going to lose heart. But we don't lose heart, he says. Why? He says, because in 2 Corinthians 5, we look at the things that are not seen rather than the things which are seen, because the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, those things are eternal. So let me sum up. A living Christ means that things are not the same no matter what we think. There has been a radical change. And you're going to keep, you may not ever walk into that dynamic, but it'll keep showing up and kind of tapping you on the shoulder. As one of my friends said here recently, Jesus shows up every once in a while because he's still committed. Things are not that bad no matter how we feel. In fact, if, if we could get off feelings and get into the right paradigm, we might actually see that much of our pain is so constructive and healthy for God reconstructing and redeeming us if we just get with the program. Things are not necessarily that way no matter what you see. If you could see it, as sometimes God pulled back the curtain and let the apostles see it or Elijah had God pull back the curtain so his servant can see it, you would see that there are forces much greater than you, realities much more powerful than you at work that you just simply cannot comprehend by human sight. It takes faith. Well, that's what a living Christ means, but there's also things a living Christ gives as we go on. Look at verse 26. It says... Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? Now he's kind of lecturing these guys. He's rebuked them, telling them that they're slow of heart to believe when what the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then it says, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Can I ask you something? Would you have liked to have been there? Would you not like to have given that time to walk seven miles with Jesus Christ as he opened up the whole Old Testament. And he didn't give them any information. Here's what I want you to see. What he gave them was spiritual understanding about the information, and that's quite different. I sometimes wonder what he probably told them. He probably went back and looked into Genesis and he said, you see there in the curse of woman where it says, and he shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush his head. He said, you see where it says, he shall crush his head. He's talking about the serpent and me. That's me there. Probably looked in Exodus and he said, see that Passover ritual? That's me. That's me that they were doing that for. Just like Jack showed us a week ago. In Numbers, when Moses smites the rock, Jesus Christ probably turned and said, see that in Numbers? That's me it was speaking about. In Isaiah, when it talks about the virgin's child, he said, I'm that. That was me. And in Isaiah 53, that great chapter where it said, he led the lamb to the slaughter so that the iniquities of us all could fall upon him. He said, can't you see? That's me. Isaiah was talking about 900 years ago. It's me. In Jeremiah, when it talks about the branch of righteousness, it's me. In Daniel, where it talks about that stone coming out of nowhere after man has built his great world empire and that stone smashes it to smithereens and the dust blows away and only the stone remains, Jesus would point back to Daniel and said, you know that stone? That's me at the end of time. It's me it's talking about. In Habakkuk, when it talks about the anointed one going back and forth to save, 
That's me. In Haggai, when it says, there will be a desired one of all the nations and all the nations will come to him. Jesus said to these two men, you know, that's me. And in Malachi, as the Old Testament closes and it talks about the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. Jesus would say, guys, that's me it's talking about. It's all talking about me. And I don't want you just to have that information. I want you to have insight and understanding. You know what troubles me oftentimes? We have a lot of information, but it has to go past information. It's got to go to revelation. It's got to go from words on a printed page to a living message with the living Christ speaking directly to you. That's what it's got to go to. I want you to keep your finger there and turn and see that and see that many places in the New Testament, this sense of spiritual understanding is very predominant. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Turn forward just a few pages till you hit Colossians. But here's Paul praying for these new believers that he has not met in Colossians chapter 1. But I want you to notice what he prays for them. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that it is their conversion to Jesus Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will. And certainly one of the things any new Christian needs to have, he needs to get into the Bible. But I want you to know how he finishes the verse. He doesn't want them just to have information. He, wants, he goes on and says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Then he says, and this is so important, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's what I want you to hear me say. No person can give you that. No one. The only person who can take information and make it spiritual understanding is the living Christ. It's those times where you, you open your Bible and you're, you're reading it and and suddenly it doesn't just become words to a church that you know nothing about 2,000 years ago. And the authority of it, you cannot resist. And it says, it's you and me here, the living Christ. I'm here. I've showed up. And this word, it's for you. Listen to it. That's a whole different world. No one can take you there. No man, no woman. Only the living Christ I want you to know, turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, just a few pages back to your left and notice that this is found, sometimes we don't see this, but it's, I think it's everywhere in the Scripture. Just notice the context. When you turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, we've read this text a lot of times, but look at verse 17. Paul's exhorting these Ephesians believers and he says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, we'd all like to know that, right? There's not a person here that wouldn't like to know what God's will for me is in a mate, in a job, in a ministry. What is God's will? And you know what? No person here can answer that for you. Because look at the next verse. It tells us who does. And do not, and that and is connected to that verse, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Controlled by Him. And in that being controlled, He will give you something. He will take that information and make it a personal message for you in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But nobody can give that for you. Only the living Christ does that.
There's a second thing the living Christ does. He gives us spiritual encounters. This is what these guys had, by the way. Look at verse 28. It says they've been listening to Jesus and he has wowed them with this insight that he's given them. And as they approached the village, they were, they were going and he acted as if he would go farther. And they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting towards evening and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with him. I really like that, by the way, because here's the living Christ walking with these guys and they come to Emmaus. The living Christ keeps walking on. Sometimes Christ comes alongside us, if I can spiritualize this for a moment, and tries to move into our life, and we come to a point of departure, and unless there's an invitation, He moves on. In fact, I would even commend to you that Jesus Christ will never force His spiritual leadership over you. He will show up periodically. He will allow you to give Him an invitation. But here's what these guys do so wisely. They invite Him in. Have you done that? You come to a place where you're looking at life, not what you see, but what you don't see, and you're inviting the living Christ, come in, walk with me, be with me, reveal yourself to me. That's, that's what these guys did, and they were wise in doing it, and they have, in light of it, a spiritual encounter that they didn't expect. Notice it says, it came about that when they had reclined at the table with them, that he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he began giving it to them. And I can only imagine in this holy moment, because this is what this turns into a holy moment, that as he reaches out to give them the bread, the sleeves on his robe come up and there are the wounds. And all of a sudden, they see, they perceive. Notice it says in verse 31, and their eyes were open and they recognize him. It's the Christ. And he vanishes. It's a holy moment. You know, ordinary moments many times become holy ground for the person who has invited the living Christ to come and be with them. I've had people say, you know, when you were preaching, I felt like you were speaking just to me. And I want you to know, I've never spoken to anyone ever personally in a message. Never had anybody where I've thought about you in advance and said, well, I'm going to get them this Sunday. <laughs> never. I just want you to know that. I, I think that's important that you hear I just want to preach the word generally. But you know what? When you feel that pressure right here, it's not me. Give credit to where credit is due. That is the spirit of God. It's holy ground you're on. There are times where you'll be speaking with a friend or talking to them and suddenly it becomes holy ground. He'll say something. You'll go, that's not him talking. That's something else here. That's God moving on my life. The living Christ. I want to tell you of an experience I had uh, not long ago. It was about six months ago, but I was sitting down talking with a friend about his marriage and he was telling me some of the things that he was struggling with. And, uh, you know, I was there to help, of course. And, um, and so he was telling me his feelings and I was kind of sitting there listening to his feelings and I was evaluating him as he was going on. I was thinking, yeah, I hear what he's saying, but, you know, the way he's trying to handle that, that's really selfish and all, and, you know, kind of evaluating like that. And you know what happened? All of a sudden, it wasn't him anymore. Now, it was him, but it wasn't him. I started listening to him, but I started hearing me. And I started hearing me saying the same things that he was saying. That I'd said those very things just the week before. And he was complaining. He was talking about how he handled them. I said, that's me. I've handled it the same way. And I was sitting there evaluating, talking about how selfish he was handling it. And suddenly it wasn't him anymore. I was over here and I was looking at me. And that was me talking. And I began to see how despicable 
and how manipulative and how closed-minded and how selfish my ways were. That's what I saw. I saw me because I was on holy ground. And I remember after we finished, I walked out to my car and I sat down and I just confessed. I said, I'm wicked. I'm, I'm so closed-minded. Thank you, Lord, for giving me eyes to see. It was over. That's the living Christ. That's life after Easter. That's not an event. That's a walk with the living God. That's what that is. And that's what makes life exciting and can carry you to the finish line faithful. But religion will never get you there. <laughs> it becomes old and tired and heavy and full of rules because there's nothing living about the law. It's dead and it kills. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, the Spirit gives life. If you have an encounter with Jesus Christ lately, if I were to ask you to list some of those things, would you be able to say, yeah, Jesus Christ met me the other day. I know He did. Between Easter and uh, Good Friday, I was at the car wash with my son. And uh, we were driving along in the car and I said, Mason, did you know Jesus Christ died for you? He said, no, I didn't know that. He didn't die for me, did he? I thought he died. I said, well, he did die, but did you know he died for you? And here's this little seven-year-old guy, you know. And I mean, you know how they are. They're all over the place. And we're sitting there talking. And, and he looked up at me with the big eyes, and it was like he'd become an adult. He said, Dad, tell me about it. So we started talking, and I started telling him about how Christ died for his sin, and that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he was dying up there for Mason. And it made such sense to him. And he said, Dad, if I don't believe that, what happens to me? So we talked about that. And it was holy ground in that little car driving along Henson. And when we drove up in the driveway, he wanted to pray. He wanted to ask God to come in and save him from his sin in a fresh way because he believed that if he trusted in the death of Jesus Christ, that he would live with him forever. That's holy ground. Living Christ gives those kind of spiritual encounters if we've invited him to come and be with us in our hearts. Lastly, a living Christ gives spiritual excitement. And I don't think you can miss this in verse 32. And they said to one another, were our, not, our hearts not burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? I mean, look at verse 17. They were sad. Now what they're saying is they're on fire. What's the difference? It's not Easter. It's the living Christ. So now we come to verse 33, and in one sense, nothing has changed, yet everything has changed. These guys suddenly, Emmaus, back to the same old, same old. They don't want that anymore. Why stay at Emmaus? They jump up and they run back to Jerusalem. It says, and they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And yet Jerusalem didn't notice. Herod was still on the throne. The Romans were still oppressing the Jews. The Roman Empire was still the dominant force over Israel. 
most citizens walking around the streets that day, they thought of Jesus as just another dead Jew who promised a lot and didn't deliver. But you couldn't tell it to these guys. Despite the overwhelming oppression, their hearts were on fire because they had met the living God. That's what's going on here. Nothing has changed, but everything has changed. It's the difference between going to church to, you know, kind of pump you up kind of experience and sitting here and kind of getting excited and going back to the same old, same old. It's like coming to church with the experience in your heart, not to get pumped up, but to worship what God has already done. What a difference. That's life after Easter. So what has this Emmaus Road taught us? Well, this, and I'll conclude, a living Christ means pursuing a spiritual adventure, not just celebrating a spiritual event. And if your faith seems routine to you here this morning, if it seems dry, if you want to break out of that, let me just give you some practical things. I can only take you so far because I want you to know spiritual things reside in the heart and the heart must encounter the living Christ to finish the process. But there are some things you can do to avail yourself to the living Christ. The first is this. The first is, is if I've been speaking and all of a sudden you realize, you know, I've acknowledged Jesus Christ as alive, but I've never thought of him as living around me every day. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you need to confess and say, Lord, I believe that you're here with me every day and that things are not the same no matter what I think. And that things are not this bad, no matter how I feel, and they're not the way, no matter what I see, you're here. I'm going to confess that to you. And maybe you need to then take this book and open it and begin to read it. But don't just read it for information. Start, as so often I start, and just say, Lord, as I read this written word, I want to encounter the living word. I just don't want to read and study. I want you to speak to me. I'm inviting you to do that. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. That's his prerogative. The wind blows where it wishes, as Jesus said of the Spirit. It comes from where you don't know where it goes to where you don't know where it's going. That's his job. That's his decision. But the last thing I want to do is be walking with blinders on, with no invitation, walking into my Emmaus house to shut the door and telling Jesus, see ya. I want to open it up and say, I want the living Christ. Maybe you need to pray. And before you pray, rather than talking about all the things you need and all the things you don't have, maybe you need to start by saying, Lord, in this moment, I'm inviting you to be with me, to walk with me, to teach me. I want you more than anything else. Change my life, my panorama, my perspective. Maybe that's a better way to start. I loved it when we had Bill Bright here and he said every morning, the first thing he did, he was speaking from this pulpit, I get down on my knees and I say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wants to experience God, not a religion. He wants to walk with the risen Christ, not just experience the celebrations around the risen Christ. And lastly, maybe you need just some time away, break out of the busy schedule and just sit and listen, but start this way in the quietness. Jesus Christ, I believe that you're here. And if you have anything to say, I'm open. That's what we're talking about. A spiritual level of life, 
not an event level, not a seminar level, not an informational level, not a fellowship level where we get together and kind of encourage one another. I'm talking about a spiritual life. Walking with the living Christ. These men finished their life excited. The Emmaus Road ended in joy. And brethren, let me encourage you. This issue I talk about today is the central issue in your life. There is none other. Listen well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are here with us. Probably some of us, even today, have been sitting there in a word or a phrase or even a glance to another person and suddenly it was holy ground. Lord, thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that you have sent a comforter and a helper and a God to make this life exciting and purposeful, even in the midst of the toil and the pain and the heartache and the broken dreams. But Father, I thank you that it has not changed you, that your purposes have not been altered, that you're using each and everything to do exactly what you committed to do on the day we said yes to you. Heavenly Father, help us to again say yes back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.